Hello and welcome to the Family Planning Files, a podcast developed by the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. I'm your host, Katherine Atchison, and today's podcast will be discussing risk mitigation in family planning settings after the release of the Supreme Court decision Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, which overturned Roe v. Wade. Our guest today is Robin Summers, J.D. Robin is Vice President and Senior Counsel at the National Family Planning and Reproductive Health Association, where she has worked since 2005. Welcome to the podcast, Robin. We're so excited to have you on today. Thank you for having me. Just to start out with, for our listeners, why is there a need for risk mitigation discussions around family planning care? Isn't the Dobbs decision only pertaining to abortion laws? So it's a great question to start off with. None of us have ever been in a post-Roe environment. So there's a whole lot of uncertainty. And I think it's an understatement, though, to say that providers in the reproductive health care space are in a new, dangerous, and volatile legal environment that can shift daily, sometimes multiple times in a single day. Dobbs fundamentally says that there is no federal constitutional right to abortion. It says that abortion is not explicitly protected by the Constitution, meaning it doesn't appear in the Constitution like, say, the First Amendment's freedom of speech protection. Dobbs also says that the right to abortion is not implicitly protected. Despite 50 years of Roe v. Wade, and implicit rights are those that are not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, but they can be implied from other rights. So that includes things like the right to marry, the right to have children or not, and the right to privacy itself. In the months since Dobbs, we have seen a number of states move to reinstate pre-Roe abortion bans, some of which are more than 100 years old, or to pass new laws restricting or banning abortion care. And the language of these various laws is different state to state, and it can be overly broad. It can be incredibly vague. It can also just be plain confusing as to exactly what's prohibited. So all of that is to say that even if a provider is not providing abortion care, a state or other private actor might assert that other services that entity provides conflict with the state's abortion restrictions or prohibitions. So, for example, it's clear that some abortion opponents are not content with completely banning abortion in their own states. They're looking for ways to stop residents from their state accessing legal abortions anywhere. So it's not a stretch to think that a state official or legislature might interpret their state's ban on, say, assisting in the provision of abortions to include things like making referrals for or providing counseling related to abortions. It's also important to note that the Dobbs decision puts a host of essential rights at significant risk, despite the court's assertions in the ruling that Dobbs only applies to abortion. The ruling's rationale, which fundamentally is that the right to an abortion is not, quote unquote, deeply rooted in history, could certainly be used to try to undermine a host of other rights. And then there's Justice Thomas's dissent. His dissent argues that what are known as substantive due process rights should all go away because he believes that there's no such thing as a substantive due process right. So this would include things like same-sex intimacy and marriage, the right to contraception laid out in Griswold v. Connecticut and Eisenstadt v. Baird. 
and the right to privacy itself. So there's no real question that a host of rights, including the right to contraception, are at risk as states seek to enforce old laws and pass new ones. And depending on the abortion laws in a particular state, how aggressive attorneys general and district attorneys are in implementing and enforcing laws, how officials seek to interpret their laws, and frankly, whether the state seeks to enact additional restrictions on contraception or family planning, family planning providers are having to navigate and manage significant potential risk under these laws for the services they provide. So that leads us really well into our next question. You mentioned the cases Griswold v. Connecticut and Eisenstadt v. Baird, which pertain to the right to obtain contraception. What are some of these specific issues that Dobbs raises around kinds of contraception, like IUDs or emergency contraception, such as Plan B or Ella? How can these be addressed specifically in Title X and other family planning settings? Even before Dobbs, we were seeing states seeking ways to ban emergency contraception and certain IUDs in their states by classifying them as abortifacients. Despite the fact that the science is clear, these are methods of contraception that prevent pregnancy, not abortifacients. So we fully expect that some states are going to now try to ban or restrict these contraceptive methods under their state abortion laws, regardless of the science. So I think that Title X providers in particular, but really any family planning providers, can be a real force for good in helping to educate their patients and the public about how EC and IUDs, and even contraception more generally, actually work. Another big concern that has come up post-Dobbs is protecting data and patient privacy, especially since certain pieces of information do need to be reported for insurance purposes or things like FPAR. How can patient privacy and data be protected now post-Dobbs? Yeah, protecting patient data and privacy is certainly a big concern generally, but even more so after Dobbs. Whether it's the information that you post on social media, the information our phones and the apps that we use collect about us, or your medical records, we all need to be concerned about who can access our personal medical information and how that information is protected. There is so much confusion out there right now about exactly what is and isn't prohibited in a given state that has abortion bans after Dobbs. For example, you know, we've all heard the stories about some healthcare providers delaying miscarriage treatment in some places because of the risk of being prosecuted under the state's abortion restrictions. Thankfully, Title X has strong confidentiality protections, and Title X funded providers are required to keep confidential all information as to personal facts and circumstances about individuals receiving services, except in certain circumstances required by law. But that doesn't mean that there won't be fights ahead. And this is something that the Biden administration is paying very close attention to. They have issued several different guidance documents around HIPAA and other privacy and data concerns since Dobbs. And the administration has set up a website, it's reproductiverights.gov, where information about privacy and other issues post-Dobbs can be found. What are considerations around telehealth? Obviously, telehealth services have really ramped up in the past two and a half years thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic, and it looks like telehealth is here to stay. So telehealth concerns, especially telehealth across jurisdictions or 
state lines even in family planning care. Yeah, telehealth has has really come onto the scene, particularly in the last few years because of the pandemic. And so I I completely agree with you. Telehealth is here to say. Telehealth is regulated at the state level. So if you're providing services across state lines, it's important to understand not only the laws in your own state, but the laws in the state where your patient is receiving care. It's also important to note that there have been additional flexibilities around telehealth generally during the pandemic. But as the government works toward ending the public health emergency, those flexibilities may be changing, including the ability to practice across state lines through collaborate. Somewhat in the same vein, what are considerations for providers who see patients in their clinics who are from out of state as Title X has no residency requirements? And these patients may be from states with stricter abortion laws than the provider's state. Absolutely. Providers in states without abortion bans are likely to see more patients seeking care from states with bans, whether for abortion services, if the provider offers those, or for services that could eventually be interpreted as falling under a particular state's abortion ban. One such example could be certainly emergency contraception, certain IUDs, even though, again, these are not actually abortifacients. And I think also as people are seeking care more broadly and are concerned about, say, the privacy and data problems that we were talking about earlier, it's certainly possible that we could start seeing people leaving their states to go receive any kind of reproductive health care because they're looking for a safe and confidential environment and they're concerned about those kinds of risks. Generally speaking, it's not a concern or at least it historically hasn't been a concern about what kind of services you provide in your state. You provide whatever services are legal in your state. But states are threatening to try to reach across borders to stop their residents from accessing care that their state has banned. This should not be allowed, even when abortion care has been criminalized by a state. Think about gambling, for example. No one would seriously suggest that a state that prohibits gambling can penalize a resident for gambling in Las Vegas or penalize the Vegas casino for allowing that state's residents to gamble in Vegas. But We just don't know how this is going to play out in courts across the country. So understanding the potential cross-border impact of those states' anti-abortion laws, as well as your own state's protections, can help you assess risks. So it's really important for providers to talk to their own counsel to assess their risk. We lawyers nearly always try to get risk as close to zero as possible. And the best way to eliminate risk is to tell your client no. So providers really need to weigh that against their mission to provide care and frankly have attorneys that they trust to provide them with advice, but also to help them get to yes where possible. To kind of get back into the clinic and the clinical services, Title 10 under the current final rule requires that pregnancy testing be offered and non-directive options counseling be provided to patients who do show up with a positive pregnancy test. What are things to be aware of when providing these services to protect both the patient and the provider? That's right. Title X funded providers are required to provide non-directive options counseling and referral on all of a pregnant patient's options upon request. So prenatal care and delivery, infant care, foster care or adoption, and pregnancy termination, except on any option about which the patient doesn't want to receive counseling and referral. 
As I mentioned before, some states with abortion restrictions or bans are likely to try to broadly prevent abortion counseling and referral as a means of preventing people from obtaining abortions, which means that a state's restrictions could come into conflict with the federal Title X requirements. The Office of Population Affairs, which oversees Title X, has been clear that the current federal requirements, including non-directive options counseling, remain in effect regardless of a state's abortion restrictions. To sort of elaborate on that, as you mentioned, that Title X also requires that patients be given a referral to an abortion provider if that is the patient's choice in that case. What does this mean for providers in states that have laws around aiding and abetting abortion as something that can be prosecuted? So, as I said, federal Title X requirements for non-directive options counseling and referral still apply even where abortion has been banned. Providers in states where abortion is prohibited would need to refer patients to out-of-state providers. It's unclear what exactly aiding and abetting means with regard to prohibitions in states that have such language in their abortion laws. But as I said, you know, we expect that at least some states will try to broadly interpret their prohibitions to try to interfere with the rights of a state's residents to obtain legal abortion services outside their states. And we just don't know yet how courts are going to ultimately rule on these kinds of questions. Are there considerations providers should keep in mind when seeing patients who are especially vulnerable, such as adolescents or patients who are undocumented? Thanks for this question. It's really critical to recognize that The people most impacted by abortion restrictions and prohibitions are the same people that disproportionately need and seek care from safety net family planning providers, particularly Title X. And there are additional considerations and barriers that different marginalized populations will experience. So undocumented people may have more problems traveling between states. Adolescents could face their own travel difficulties and have to navigate different states' requirements about things like judicial bypass and parental involvement. Ongoing systemic inequities that exist across the healthcare system are only going to be magnified. People of color are often disproportionately targeted by law enforcement and so are most likely to feel the brunt of criminalization of abortion care. Trans and gender diverse people are facing targeted attacks while simultaneously having to navigate a complicated landscape of changing laws governing their reproductive health. And the list just goes on and on. So anything that providers can do to help patients find and access unbiased and medically accurate information and to help their patients access care is really, it's just more important than ever. On the subject of information, where are good places for providers and Title X organizations to go when looking for guidance on risk mitigation and family planning, or just guidance on what to tell patients who may be concerned about their rights and ability to access the reproductive health care they need. Well, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the government has set up a website, reproductiverights.gov, and it actually does include quite a bit of information, particularly around patients' rights and helping them to understand what their rights are. And so that's a really good place to start, I think, when you're talking about how to work with your patients and help them understand what's going on. Beyond that, right, a lot of this is still developing as these states implement more laws and as we all have a chance to really assess how things are being interpreted. That being said, You know, NIFRA just recently published a guide that includes the latest information and resources on abortion access, and that resource guide is available for everyone on the NIFRA website. 
NIFR also recently shared with its members a memo intended to help them identify, in conjunction with their legal counsel, organizational risks related to the provision of family planning services amidst this shifting environment of state abortion and related restrictions and prohibitions. So if you're a NIFR member, you already have this. If you're not a NIFR member, you can certainly contact us at membership at NIFR.org. Certainly, we would encourage you to become a member. Lastly, I'll say that, you know, we are all entering an unprecedented and extremely difficult period in reproductive rights, health, and justice. So my colleagues and I at NIFRA are working to help our members assess and navigate this landscape, and we're preparing for state attacks on the legality and legitimacy of contraception more broadly. And that is work that we are going to be continuing to do in the months and, frankly, years to come. Well, this has been a wonderful and very informative conversation, Robin. But unfortunately, all good things must end. But before we say goodbye, what would be just your final takeaway for our clinician listeners if there was just one thing you would want them to keep in mind as they return to their practices? Even before Dobbs, millions of people already experienced barriers and lack of access to abortion care. And as more states rush to enact policies and laws, to restrict and prohibit abortion access, fault lines that exist within the nation's healthcare safety net are only going to deepen. So my final sort of message to providers and clinicians across the country is, you know, in a world where access to abortion is severely limited, it is even more important for people who want contraception to be able to affordably and easily access it from family planning providers that they feel safe with and trust. And that means that, you know, in addition to fighting to restore and protect abortion rights, we have to be focusing on medically accurate information and services. And we've got to keep pushing our leaders to expand and protect access to contraception, to safety net family planning providers, and to the Title X program. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Robin, and for sharing your time and expertise. It was a pleasure. For more content, including previous podcast episodes, search for The Family Planning Files or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For a transcript of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. You can also follow the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning on Twitter at NCTCFP, all lowercase, or on LinkedIn. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter, Clinical Connections, on our website. The National Clinical Training Center is funded by the Office of Population Affairs to provide continuing education, training, and technical assistance to Title X grantees, subrecipients, and service sites. This activity is supported by DHHS Grant Number 1, FPTPA 006031-01-00. The contents of this podcast solely represent the views of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, or the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. No official support or endorsement by DHHS OASH or OPA for opinions or products described in this podcast is intended or should be inferred. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And finally, 
Thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of The Family Planning Files.